0: A better way Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July the 8th, 2015, and this is episode 1606 of the Survival Podcast. It's also the last edition of the Survival Podcast for about a week and a half, the Survival Podcast will be off-air. Uh, of course, there are 1,606 episodes to choose from, to listen to from the past, but I will not return till the air until the 20th of uh, July. I'm going to be in Florida. Fishing, hanging out with Doc Bones and Nurse Amy and my wife, drinking some adult beverages and making sashimi right on the top of a cooler on the beach in front of wide-eyed tourists who can't believe that some redneck is sitting there eating raw fish with with, uh, soy sauce and wasabi on it while drinking a tequila uh, margarita while the sand is still uh, falling down the back of his neck. That's what I'm going to be doing. And, uh, I hate leaving for that long without a show, but we all need our batteries recharged and I'm in need of recharging mine. So while I'm gone, do consider listening to random episodes using the random episode feature. Just go to com, or if you're on your smartphones and don't want to type in all those, all those letters, just tspc.co. Tspc.co will lead you right to the site and you'll see a little link uh, in the middle column about uh, three quarters of the way down the screen that says listen to a random episode. Just keep, keep clicking it till you find something you like until I get back. With that, uh, before I get into today's show, which is going to be a good one, we're going to talk about strategic relocation today. Yes, I'm I'm temporarily strategically strategically relocating myself to a beach. We're talking about more long-term relocation with David Haight today. We we'll bring him back on the air. We had him on before about alternative vehicles. Uh, but anyway, we're going to be talking about that. Before we get into it, let's go ahead. Take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Chef Keith Snow. Chef Keith is an awesome guy. He's a member of our expert council, long-term sponsor of the show, and he just has an awesome website. If you get over to harvesteating.com, you're going to find all kinds of great stuff. First, you can find the stuff that he sells. His organic teas, his spices, seasoning mixes, and other products. I use Chef Keith's spices and seasoning mixes on a daily basis, pretty much. Uh, If I'm not reaching for uh, the northern Italian, I'm probably reaching for low and slow or Montana steak or the new prime rib stuff or the chicken curry. It's just all awesome. Awesome. He also teaches you how to focus on the technique over the recipe in cooking, how to make cooking a life skill, how to cook seasonally and locally. He's got a lot of great videos on his website, a lot of great blog posts, a lot of great recipes, and he's got an awesome podcast. You can find it all at HarvestEating.com. And remember, Chef Keith is a member of our expert council. If you have a question about cooking, you get it into me, and we'll get you an answer for it on a Friday show. Chef Keith Snow at HarvestEating.com, long-term sp- sponsor, great partner, Great fellow prepper and just one of the most awesome guys you'll ever meet. Check out his website again today at harvesteating.com. Sponsor of the day number two today is Backwoods Home Magazine, the easiest company that I've ever had to endorse ever in my entire career. Um, It's really easy to endorse a company when you can look back and say to yourself, I've been this company's customer for over 20 years. That's what Backwoods Home is to me. 1994, I became a subscriber to Backwoods Home. I didn't even start the Survival Podcast till 2008. I was their customer for all of those years. In the early years of the Survival Podcast, a lot of the information that I shared with you, a lot of the teaching that I did came right out of Backwoods Home Magazine. They're an incredible company, and hey, if you haven't been a a customer that long, consider going back and checking out some of their anthologies. They have anthologies going back to the very first year of public at Backwoods Home. If you want to get a subscription, you're a new subscriber, they have a deal for you in the member support brigade as well. Backwoods Home is an amazing publication. If they weren't, I wouldn't have been their customer this long. It's great today that I can work with people like Dave Duffy and John Silvera, Masada Yub, and Jackie Clay. Knowing that you know after reading them all those years, they're now part of what I do. It's just awesome. If you check out Backwoods Home, what you'll find is a publication, sort of kind of like Grit, Sort of kind of like Mother Earth news, with a lot more homesteading stuff in it, and with a libertarian flair. Check out BackwoodsHome.com today, and you'll see why I've been their customer for so very long. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, of the year 1606. I have the Dutch find Australia but miss the point. I have Galileo is feeling the heat. And I have the magic of secret writing is made public. I am going to do Galileo is Feeling the Heat, but all three of these are awesome. You really should check out TSPWiki.com for all the great stuff there, including the expanded version of the history segments to get a better context of history put together for us by the awesome Alex Shrugged right out of the TSP community. Galileo is Feeling the Heat. Galileo is one of several people who are said to have invented the thermometer. Frankly, many schemes have been used down the centuries to measure a change in temperature, Galileo worked out some sort of liquid moving in response to the expansion or contraction of a gas. Still, it will be a few more years before drawings will be made and the thermometer will take the shape of a tube with marks that measure the change. This is why the credit for the invention of the thermometer is spread around. It was an incremental process of development rather than a single event. Many of the so-called inventions, this is my take by Alex Shrugged, many of the so-called inventions of Galileo are actually improvements on previous designs or engineering feats rather than inventions themselves. The telescope was one of his improvements, but he didn't invent the telescope. He also created a geometric compass, not a magnetic compass, to help military perform ballistic calculations when aiming their cannons. It looks like a plumb bob hanging next to a triangular scale. If you see it, you will recognize instantly how it works, which was the point of creating it. Most gunners had little to no math skills, but they had eyes, and they could be trained to count. By following the marks on the scale, they could aim their guns to great precision. Of course, when making guns easy to aim so that an idiot can do it, one should use care. Idiots can be so damned ingenious. Uh, Indeed, we... uh, Throughout this period of history, specifically this period of history, the 1600s forward, um, almost every decade saw an advance in weapons of what you would call mass destruction. Now, today, when we say a weapon of mass destruction, we mean something like, oh, I don't know, nuclear weapons, chemical bombs, stuff that can kill millions or hundreds of thousands or even tens of thousands at once. But up until this time period, if you wanted to kill a lot of people, you needed a lot of people to kill a lot of people. And what happens from this point forward is technology gets better and better at killing people. And despite the massive deaths of the past, it will be the 20th century that will see the greatest numbers of deaths from single occurrences and the greatest amounts of murder And that's what war is. I think we've tried to tell ourselves that war is not murder. Uh, War in some instances may be justifiable murder, but in many instances it's not. The reality of war is that we've taken things that are complicated and made them simple and then used those simple, complicated things to kill other people. If we actually looked at it that way, maybe there'd be less wars. I'm just saying my take by Jack Spierko. Anyway, with uh, that wrapped up, I want to go ahead and introduce our special guest right now. Again, we had him on the show before. He is a uh, professional pilot by trade, but a permaculturist at heart. Uh, he was part of the uh, 2014 Jeff Lawton online permaculture design course. He investigates a wide range of topics from uh, low to high tech, including designing his own lifestyle and helping others with their own lifestyle goals. That's what he's up to now. His name is David Haight. He's a long-term member of the TSP community, and with that, I want to say, "Hey, Doug, David, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast."
1: Hey, thank you, Jack, for having me back.
0: Uh, last time I had you on, I had you to talk on to talk about uh, alternative fuel vehicles and hybrids and electric cars and stuff like that. It Was a great show. Uh, so when I saw your name come through on the queue to, to come back on, I was happy to have you back on. I was like really surprised actually to see what we're going to be talking about today, which is strategic relocation. Um, but just for folks that maybe haven't heard the previous episode, just so the audience can kind of connect with you, can you kind of talk a little bit about your, your personal and professional background and how you ended up to a point where you're, you're thinking about relocating strategically and then going ahead and doing it?
1: Certainly. Well, my main career has been as a professional pilot for the last, oh, 15 years or so, uh, which means I've been fortunate to be able to travel around all over the world and see how things are different and especially how things are the same worldwide. There's really not nearly as much variation between place to place as most people think. But I used to really, say, pride myself on the ability to, to be content. You know, maybe not fully happy, but definitely not uh, complaining like a lot of people are in just about any location, any particular place. Uh, you know, as long as I was safe and, and reasonably comfortable, you know, I should be able to enjoy this. Well, uh turns out I managed to find a place that I absolutely love more than any other. And so that's what I really, really wanted to talk about today. And I'm sure there's a lot more to the, the backstory about how I got here, but I'm sure we'll get to that as the show goes on.
0: Great. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people that are thinking about moving somewhere else, and you, you got to be careful with the grass is greener syndrome and stuff like that. But I, I usually find the best way to to figure out where you should be is to figure out what you want. Um, and so that's usually the bigger motivation, not so much what you don't want. That's that's pretty obvious to people. Find out what you do want and find a place that matches it. What were your big motivations to relocate? Sure.
1: So I grew up with, uh, let's call it a very sheltered, a very – typical suburban existence. but even through that I always had a sense that a lot of the institutions that we have around us just there's something not quite right about them. Uh, my first experience with this was with the religious institutions uh, that my parents were both ordained ministers and part of this and, and it just didn't quite gel with me you know kind of like your experience growing up in, in Catholic school that it's just it's just not quite what I believe in or what I want. so I had to go out and sort of find my own spirituality. Uh, my next experience with, you know, figuring out something was wrong with the institutions around us was in terms of financial institutions. I remember reading the book Creature from Jekyll Island. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. Absolutely. Yeah, I remember reading that. I was maybe 15 when I read it. So, you know, to be disenchanted with the myth of the dollar really, really early was obviously a formative experience. Uh, but unfortunately the only real solution I found for that was you know, use credit unions instead of the traditional banks. <laughs> Try not to get into too much debt, right? Yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, not too long after that I was on, I remember being on vacation with uh, parents over in Europe and I just really had this sense like I, w- I was supposed to leave. I was just supposed to exit this society, get out of here, had some kind of crazy fantasy to uh, go join a Native American reservation and, and live the way they did. Of course this is before I figured out what uh, kind of sorry state we've uh, unfortunately led our Native American brothers into. Um, so, you know, I've always had kind of this thought that this, this institutions aren't it. I need to go somewhere else, do something else. But I held back. And I think it's probably the flying that, that held me back and, and uh, had me go back into society, kind of go partially back asleep, let's say, you know, intentionally put aside what I knew because I really didn't have any solutions for it anyway. But I was always... Looking looking around at the problems. Uh, Next one. I kind of looked at was the authoritative institutions. Let's say, you know uh, Came to the conclusion that that the government is really the same as the mafia is the same as unions same as corporations They're all basically the same You know pyramid structure power hierarchy or whatever And the only solution I found to that was was co-ops, you know another partial solution doesn't really fix it Uh, We've talked previously on the other show about the energy structures all the problems. I've seen in and how we get our daily energy supply uh, the problems with food institutions, but it was really that last one that led me to permaculture, which I think is a much more complete solution set for a lot of these problems that I found. <clears throat> it turns out permaculture, excuse me, <clears throat> also is very, very useful when you're trying to do strategic relocation. If you understand the concepts in permaculture and, and the ideas put out by a lot of, let's say, the bigs in permaculture, is it really going to help you with choosing where to go so that you're not just uh, trying to avoid problems, but you're really getting someplace uh, that you really want to be uh, that meets your desires, like you said.
0: So how did you search for and find the particular property that you're on? Where do you start? Because I get questions from people all the time, and a lot of me feel is so personal that I can only give, like, minor guidance. I mean, you know what you want, so – how did you find what you were looking for?
1: Certainly. And, you know, definitely first and foremost, knowing what you actually want and not what you're, you know, supposed to want or told to want. That's, that's definitely a huge part of it. Uh, I started out looking out just absolutely worldwide. You know, the world is my, my playground. I can go wherever I want. I can be a pilot wherever I want, you know, travel around, do whatever. So I'm started really looking in terms of the natural disasters. Where are the places that have hurricanes or, earthquakes or whatever, where are the natural disasters that I can either see coming or that are so minor or localized that they shouldn't be a problem? And that's one way to look at the problem, but that that was older thinking, let's say. I also looked very deeply into how oil-dependent that particular place was. Uh, in fact, I remember sorting on Wikipedia countries by how many barrels of oil they used and trying to make sure to, to sort so that the, the fewer barrels of oil countries came up first, but uh, let's just say I wasn't finding any any names on that list that uh, also pass the political corruption test? <laughs> um, so these are a lot of things that a lot of the on strategic relocation are going to try to have you focus on. or you know get natural disasters? Um, how are you going to meet some of your normal common needs, but also the political structures that you probably don't have a whole lot that you can do anything about. And it seems like every, you know, expert on strategic relocation I try to listen to, they were all sort of phrased the problem more like dodging a bullet. Like you, if you just move this one place this one time, you'll be able to buy the whole, you know, economic collapse or whatever, you know, fear thing they're trying to sell. Um, and then you just kind of go on about your business and they ignore the 20 plus years probably on either side of that collapse that I think makes even more of a difference than than one Tewth Milwaukee event. Does that make sense? Yeah. So for me, my priorities, things that were really important to me were clean air, uh, because if you can't tell my voice, I have a lot of upper respiratory issues. Uh, I really want clean water. Uh, So being in a place where there's not a whole lot of major municipalities upstream of me, you know, you've had uh, people in the past call in about how, you know, pharmaceuticals get dumped into the water supply, that kind of stuff. Uh, So clean air, clean water, but also a place that has enough resources for the people that are here, but not so many resources that somebody would want to come and invade and take those resources and and, uh, exploit them, take them somewhere else. So I've often been quoted as saying, you know, if I have uh, you know good access to sun, uh, good access to water, I can engineer my way around. The other problems come up. Um, What I was discounting when I kind of came up with that phrase is that uh, social engineering is not very easy. You're not going to be able to affect other people as much. Um, so are you familiar with Yeoman's Keyline Scale of Permanence by any chance? Yep. So I would say for people that were trying to decide on what to look for, uh, take a look at that, that scale of permanence that basically says there's things that you cannot affect, you cannot change easily, right? You are not going to move a mountain. Cool. You're not going to adjust the climate for real. You may be able to moderate it a little bit, but um, you know, little things that you can adjust it, fine. You will be able to change like the nature of the soil right there's lots of things we could do to mend the soil, change the soil so I really wouldn't worry about a soil being too alkaline or too uh, acidic you know you've found that on your own property that the you know what's been two three years and you've really been able to affect the soils on your place so the key permanence I think is a good guide for someone to try to say, okay, can I live with the climate in this place? can I live with where the mountains are or not or where the rivers are or not, because the other things you will be able to uh, to adjust. The one thing that's missing on that scale, again, I said, is social institutions. And for me, it's about the bigger the social institution, the harder it is for you to affect. Right? I'm not going to affect Dallas, you know, the city of Dallas government or the millions of people in the metroplex, but in a smaller location. Few hundred, few thousand people. Yeah, I might be able to reach out and connect and convince some of those people that you know permaculture is a good idea or not.
0: Okay, so can you talk about like? I know you don't want to give away like GPS coordinates or anything, but in all of this, where did you choose to go? Is, sure, is is, is as specific as you want to or not want to be with that? Ah, uh,
1: sure. Um, so I ended up on Colorado's western slope. Uh, if you look up Lone Cone Mountain, I'm just a little bit north of that, in a valley uh, that's kind of like a wide, flat valley uh, down slope from Telluride, Colorado. So I've got mountains that are 14,000 foot elevation, 30 to 40 miles east of here, and if you go another 30 or 40 miles west of here, you're almost into Moab, Utah. So I've got quite a range of uh, different climates, microclimates, climate types uh in this particular area. And it's part of what I really love out here is that uh, if you go for a drive, you know, have, drive into the airport to start a flying trip or something like that, every 10 or 20 miles there's something totally different to look at, uh, which means you've got a lot of different opportunities for permaculture design in these different microclimates, but you've also got um, a certain amount of food stability or security that, you know, the crops that are ripening or ready to go at 5,000 feet you know, Two weeks later, they're going to be ready to go at 6,000 feet, and then two weeks after that at 7,000 feet, two weeks after that at 8,000 feet. So uh, there's lots of interesting diversity out here, which is something I really like.
0: It also seems like you're – I looked up that area on Google Maps. You're Even though Colorado has some fairly draconian things they say you can and can't do, in the end, it's only a matter of whether or not they're able to enforce it. And it looks like you're pretty much in a place where you're going to be left hell alone
1: that is a huge huge portion of why I moved out here Um, we've got a very very small county government in fact there are no stoplights in this county (laughs) which I think is a huge plus they uh, they tried to put in a stoplight up by Telluride and the the people said no no we're just not gonna have that here we're gonna buy some extra land and put it in a traffic circle instead Um, but we also have a, a sheriff who used to run on a libertarian ticket uh, and we also have people out here that, uh, even though rain barrels are technically illegal, you see them all over the place because we're just we're kind of doing this with uh, the 10th Amendment Center style nullification that goes, yeah. you know, you you know, Denver, you can pass all the laws you want. We got a different reality over here in this corner of the state. Thank you.
0: And, yeah, and good luck enforcing it. Exactly, right? Exactly. I mean, seriously, like, really good luck. Lo- and I think that that's a big part of Tenth Amendment Center philosophy when they say, well, you know, the federal government won't let you. Let me. Let me. I, I don't – I'm sorry. I didn't know that I was asking a question. I, I think I was telling you what we're going to do, and now you go see if you can do something about it. And I think that as you reduce population density, the ability for them to do something about it goes down, and the the payoff for doing something goes down. I mean, how much effort can you really put into traveling into the middle of nowhere to take away somebody's rain barrel? I mean, exactly. you just, you can't, it doesn't logistically work. And that's why I think they like moving as many people as possible to urban centers. It makes them easy to control. Um, You know, you can't control an elk herd, but you sure as hell can control a cattle herd at a CAFO.
1: And the, the closer you pack people in, the more you have to organize and regiment them so that one person's not negatively affecting the other so i think people will are more ready to accept an authority that will um, intervene between neighbors when you know this person's noise or this person's garbage or this person's something is more likely to affect somebody else so yeah that's where you see more authoritarian structures popping up is is where people have to share space and share resources and share noisescape
0: Very cool. So when you were talking about your motivations, it seemed like quality of life and enjoying life were really a big part of that. So now that you've relocated, what's turned out to be the most important factor for your enjoyment of where you moved to?
1: Certainly. Um, You know, all those things that I identified as important to me before, definitely nice to have those. Let me throw a few more on the list. Uh, that Again, if you listen to the, the experts on strategic relocation might get missed. Um, me personally, having a good view is very important. Now, I know Jeff Lawton talks very much about, uh, you know, de-emphasizing a view versus putting a house site in the right place, but for me, I would rather do the extra engineering to lift the water up to the top of the hill and have a better view. Um, I mean, if you think about it, it's perfectly natural. I'm a pilot and most of my job is staring out the window. So, of course, I want to be able to stare out the window at something pretty at home too, right? Um, but you're not, I don't think you're ever going to see any any expert on strategic relocation talk about that. Uh, we already kind of talked about the people around here, but I'll, I'll go into that a little bit deeper. Um, what I found when I started taking vacations in this area and especially got out of the vacation zone and started really talking to the people is there is a lot of conventional cattle ranchers in this area, but there is a bit of a changeover happening away from the conventional cattle ranching towards younger people producing food in alternative means, whether that's, you know, full-blown permaculture designs, smaller techniques like simply aquaponics or, um, you know, redoing some, some, let's say, small-scale urban food forests down in town. There's this, Kind of changeover that's happening with some younger, um, what's more open-minded thoughts on agriculture. So that's really, really been fun to participate. That, and I think we'll talk more about that a little bit, a little bit later. Um, I like the fact that this area actually has a specific strategy of not growing. They're not trying to grow their way out of some sort of urban problem that they inherited 50 years ago. They really want to keep, um, you know. Large franchises, large businesses out. They're trying to emphasize small business and sustainable development. Um, which I think is just absolutely the right strategy to have with uh, the economic issues that may come up in the future. Uh, we talked about the government, of course. Oh, and uh, let's not forget not having to mow a lawn in the country.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm all about that. I think we, uh, I think we run the little lawn tractor about twice a year here. And, sure. uh, you know, it's funny because we have this thing that we've gotten involved with called Next Door, which is like a, a local Facebook sort of thing. And it's yep. it's kind of cool yep. because, you know, you can find out, like, who should I hire to do this or whatever. And some government troll from the public works thing got on there and basically posted this thing saying, can you please call in and narc out your neighbors whose grass is over 12 inches long? Um, wow. And it was immediately obvious that the whole group... And there's about a hundred people, because it's like seven neighborhoods that are part of this group on on this thing together, bifurcated, and you could tell where people lived just by the stance they took. And the majority of the people seem to go to the camp of if if you do this, and you ever need some help, don't ask, right? Like, and 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 the to, to see this play out, and you realize, man, I'm glad I live in the part where they can't do anything about this anyway. You know, we exactly. live in an unincorporated area. and But just down the road, you got these yubbies that move to the country and then want the country to be like the city. And it, it sounds like there's none of that where you're at because <laughs> there's no city to be like.
1: Exactly. It's, it's a small town. It's been a small town, and I, I certainly hope it stays that way for quite a long time. I mean, it was a big deal when this place was going to get a cell tower. And people were worried about the view, which, of course, I, I, I certainly appreciate uh, them wanting to protect the views and everything like that. But, you know, I'm glad the cell tower went in because otherwise, you know, it'd be a little tough to make cell phone calls. But let um, I me mean, just add another tip to that. Nextdoor.com, that was actually a really, really, really good website for where I used to live in Dallas. Um, the local neighborhood really came around that particular website, and often we'd find out what was going on in the neighborhood faster on that website than through word of mouth or the newspaper or anything like that. Um, You know, just really, really good tool for uh, community action, community policing worked out really, really well that way. So uh, let me throw another kudos in their bucket. That's an awesome site.
0: So you're involved with some stuff now, I think, from your notes here that says that you, you really feel you've made the right decision on your location. Can you talk about that?
1: Certainly. Uh, the first thing that confirms to me that, that uh, I'd hit on something special is uh, when my mother decided to move out here as well. Uh, so if you know, you can convince a, a family member that, yeah, I'm, I'm doing something right and it's going in the right direction and, and they actually go the same direction you do, that I think is a, a good confirmation. But um, a lot of little coincidences keep coming up that kind of confirm that I'm headed in the right direction. Uh, Jeff Lawton's videos, for example, his... Um, Property purchase checklist was coming out right about the time that I was making the go-no-go decision on come, uh, buying this property all the way up through some of the videos now on upscale permaculture that uh, meshed up nicely with a, a job permaculture job I did. didn't successfully get, but um, some of those little coincidences, I've learned to pay attention to those. The most important thing, though, is we've got uh, a food co-op that we're trying to start out here. And it's really been very, very interesting to see the community coming together around this particular co-op to address some of the issues in terms of food distribution, uh, access to markets for local farmers. And man, Jack, you hit it on the head when it comes to the fact that getting, uh, capital, you know, getting enough money to start this was not the problem. Mm. Getting enough people interested to start was not the problem wading through the quagmire of government regulations in terms of being able to know what legal structure to put this thing under, how do we avoid an IRS tax burden uh, and do it the right way from the beginning. That has been the hard, hard, hard part. Um, but watching this food co-op come together and these young farmers come together to, to create a market and I was here right at the right time to be able to help them with some of the, the technical aspects of it in terms of the, the website. Um, but unfortunately, I, I got roped into uh, working on the legal quagmires as well.
0: Yeah, it is it is the case that always I, I, I tell all idealistic young people with starry eyes that that think the world is unjust and that they need to so go out. And I'm like, you know, keep feeling that way. But let me just tell you what's going to happen. You're going to find your thing and realize this is the place you can take a stand and do something. Your first problem you're going to run into is money and you will solve the money problem. And once you solve the money problem, it's going to seem like you have a clear path, and then you're going to run right into government. And most of these young people want government to fix the problem, so they have a hard time accepting that, that that's the case. They they really think it's greedy rich people that prevent these solutions from happening. And, and what they don't realize is that there's plenty of money to do good things with. There There's rich people, if you want to you know, just use a colloquial term, there's rich people who if you tell them you're – and I've seen this happen in like chamber of commerce things and all, and people are out with a nonprofit, and when they say, well, how much money are you looking for, if the number's too small, they're not interested. Because they're like, right. well, that's not the kind of organization I back. I'm looking for somebody who can make use of $50,000 a year. So right. there, there's people that will literally not get a donation because they're not asking for enough money. And we're told money's the problem. But as you saw, and I know when I was trying to figure out how to skin the permit ethos model and all, and I was talking to different attorneys, they basically told me the government doesn't like co-ops.
1: I would a hundred percent agree with that. I mean, the, the IRS documents are <laughs> just, just absolutely a mess of, uh, you know, mixing metaphors between the different types of co-ops. Uh, they, they use legal terms that there's almost no chance a layman's going to understand. And so the, the co-op actually got a very small grant from a local development, um, foundation to get a lawyer to advise us on is this in fact the right co-op structure? Is this the right? And even that lawyer is just scratching his head going, I, I, I don't get it.
0: Yeah. And at some point you have to anchor down and take a shot and, and say and defend your decisions. And what, what's sad is that, that the co-op model is one of the best models for improving communities that could ever exist. It really is. It's a, a co-op in its basic form, of course, is an organization owned by the members and run for the members' benefit. That, but that is a very decentralizing model. You know, you, you, co-ops are not really designed. Some of them have been successfully used to make big, giant brands that are multinational or whatever. But they're really designed to, to, to benefit a small group of people that have control over whatever the co-op does. And, and that is the antithesis of government. It's self-governance at at the highest level, so of course government hates it.
1: Sure. You know, the the IRS throws around terms subrogation of capital, but that's exactly what it is. It's de-emphasizing the need to make a profit, the need to extract or exploit from the activity, and rather focus on the benefit of the activity to the people engaged in the activity or planning the activity.
0: But like people don't understand that creates jobs. And that job Absolutely. has a tax base that it creates. I mean, so you set up your co-op. Eventually, you decide it's gotten big enough. We need somebody to mine the store. So when people come by to get stuff, there's someone there to do it. Well, that person doesn't work for free. They have a payroll that's paid out of the co-op, and they pay income tax on that. And it, it, so it is this, it's this. It's really basically kind of a, a company store model that actually belongs to the people that own it. And everybody owns it. And, and, and again, you can see why government would hate that because it takes power away
1: absolutely you know every co-op that you've seen in history the ones that work the ones that don't but there's always been a, a backlash from the powers that be that go now this isn't this isn't right in fact we even saw that with the banks a while back um after the whole occupy wall street thing there was a big push uh, i believe it was called bank transfer day and in one day they got about six million dollars moved out of the traditional banks and into credit unions they were trying to uh you know, repeat this day after day after day. Well, the big bank's answer to this would be to, uh, basically make credit unions illegal. Uh, and they're trying to do that. You know, what's, what is a credit union? It's basically a cooperative bank, right?
0: Mm-hmm. It's a people's bank. And what, see, the problem is, like we, I was just saying it on today's show, that, uh, that we've ruined that word. We've ruined many words. So when you hear the people's bank, it sounds like China or something, you know? Where it, it it and that's what they've done is they've polluted words to the point where we can't even use the English language anymore. When I say people's bank, I mean the people the people that are part of the bank, not the people of the country, which is the the antithesis of government. We're we're going off track though, so let's 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 move back into more on this relocation stuff. So, um I imagine with something this big, something this this involved with your life, there were probably some pitfalls that you ran into both internally and externally did you kind of talk about some of the things that you ran into you didn't expect and how you got through them?
1: Sure, sure. Um, So whenever you're doing a a relocation, strategically planned or not, anytime you're relocating, uh, the thing you're bringing with you that's the most important is yourself. So any of the good habits you have, any of the bad habits you have, guess what, they're coming with you. Um, So my own philosophies in some ways definitely helped uh there were some things in my philosophies that said if I'd listened to them, probably would have taken me off in the wrong direction um, I also listened to, to Paul Wheaton's podcast quite a bit and let's say I shared his avoidance of all things toxic geek and in fact I probably went a little too far into trying to plan everything to only be able to use stainless steel and silicone and uh you know things that aren't going to have any Toxic chemicals or, or PBDEs or you know I know those crazy things in it, but I had to really dial that back because I realized I was making going to make things way too hard on myself to try to only have non-toxic materials on here. Of course, I want to reduce the level of toxins as much as I can, but I have to balance that with you know how much harder, how much uh, more time or money is it going to take to even find things made of these materials, let alone put them in. The biggest problem, biggest pitfall, and I heard heard other people say this before. I've seen articles on it on permaculture news is simply trying to do too much. You know, I bought forty acres because I want to be able to do a lot of things in the future, but I really, really, really wanted it all done yesterday and that just isn't gonna happen. So I needed to step back and prioritize and just focus on you know the zone one the main garden area where i can control that get that island of fertility going and as the rest of the property is ready to be developed as i find partners to help me with the rest of the the 40 acres kind of in a salton mile model great that'll happen uh you know i looked at all the rain we had this year and man did i really 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 want my water harvesting stuff in do i really regret not having it in yeah but you know what there's always next year so, those are the big big internal pitfalls I think I've stepped around.
0: I think that's one of the huge ones for people is not trying to do too much too fast and and then also some level of acceptance with it's not necessary to control every inch of your land. There is a thing called zone five, and there is a exactly. place for it and in, in in theory anyway, often in practice due to constraints and and trying to make a living. It doesn't end up this way. But in theory, anyway, it should be the biggest of the zones. And properly managed, it can be.
1: And, you know, it doesn't have to stay zone five forever. You know, it it may be that you go straight from a zone one, you know, high intensity, lots of human energy space to a, a relatively abandoned space, let's say, for the first four or five years. But then as the zone one, zone two, as those things start to mature, then you can push back that zone five back into a, a zone three, something like that, as either you have the time or your partners have the time. Uh, and that's definitely what I'm doing in my cases is, is waiting until the right people are available. And I definitely have found people that will make good partners in the future. We're just not ready to pull the trigger on um, being a full-fledged farm yet. Uh, external pitfalls, um, biggest one, and this is kind of a, a – personal Teotawaki, sort of like uh, you had uh Jill on a while ago. Uh in my case it was my ex wife filing for a divorce was a huge one. And you know I don't want to go too far off into all the all the all the reasons for it, but there's definitely a case for how family can be a help or family can be a hurt that if your family is not supportive of you doing this relocation. You know, they think you're moving too far away. They don't think you're moving in the right direction. They don't think you're ever going to see you again, whatever it is. They might hold you back. Uh, they might put doubts in your mind or, or weaken your resolve or vice versa. Family can be very, very helpful. Like I said, my side of the family is very supportive of the move, uh, stepped up and helped in a lot, a lot of ways. And eventually, like I said, they loved it out here too and came with. So um, family is definitely something to plan for in relocation that I think a lot of people miss. Uh different external pitfall, uh, the previous owner not only tried to sabotage the deal, I really think they didn't want to leave, and now that I'm here, I definitely don't blame them for not wanting to leave, but uh, they definitely made the the sale process really, really, really hard, and they've also left a lot of things that were not really well done. Um, I'm not going to say necessarily up to code or not up to code because I don't really believe in code, but uh, a lot of things that were partially repaired or you know, it was very well hidden that they weren't as as And so, therefore, the last six months has been a lot more deconstruction and repair and, you know, trying to turn a repair event into an actual improvement event um, rather than being able to, you know, go forward on a lot of things in my permaculture design.
0: Can you talk about why, through all of this, you ended up deciding to stay in America? A lot of times when you talk strategic location, especially with the supposed experts, there's all these, you know, countries with tax advantages and stuff like that. I I kid at times talking about being tired of all of this and you know, leaving for Costa Rica. And there's there's good and bad there. I mean being able to not pay about forty to fifty thousand dollars a year in tax is a pretty good one. That buys a pretty good place to live. Um on the other hand though, in the end, I've always come back to it just seems like as bad as we have it with some things here, we have it better than others do. Is that kind of how you ended up feeling?
1: Absolutely. That you know, there's a lot of resources here in the United States, um, and I think we've got the most likely to be able to push back against the government that's just headed off in the wrong direction. Uh, I know it may not seem that way right now. You're having to talk about, you know, moving on to full-blown insurrectionist thinking, but there's a lot of countries that would never, never, never make it to the point of thinking in an insurrectionist mode, whereas it's, it's something we hint at in our own history. Um, the only other country I found that I would have even considered really moving to long-term was New Zealand. But unfortunately, to go down there, you either need to have two million dollars in in assets, or you need to be on a list of occupations that they really need, because apparently they really want to keep immigration and growth down, and not have their uh, style of living change too much. So, you know, everybody wants to go there because you can't go there. Um, so, <laughs> among those two countries, uh, you know, I see the best chance of a person being able to make for themselves what they want to make for themselves. Does
0: that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I'll tell you another thing about this country that we have that is is unique. Other countries have provinces or things we would call territories or states, but not with the differential that we have here. And, and with the the vast majority of choice of climate, choice of government type, choice of community type, um, it is almost like um, a collective of 50 little micronations with this overriding central authority, this republic that was supposed to be there. And it I don't believe it is to the level that it's supposed to be with the individual states running their own show. But it's the closest thing there is to that. So I've often realized that a person that wants to relocate has certain things they don't want and certain things they do want, and if they can obtain that without having to deal with immigration, naturalization services, etc., then it makes more sense to use this tremendous amount of resource that we have here with all this choice. And if you think about it, I don't know a nation in the world that more people are trying to get into than this one.
1: Correct, correct. We And I, I see the long-term trend is going back towards that kind of republic model, uh, especially with the things we have going on here in Colorado. Where we're basically saying, you know, hey, you federal government, no, you're not going to be able to tell us what we can and can't grow here. Uh, there's a, a GMO labeling proposition that I think will probably pass here pretty soon where, you know, the FDA or the USDA, they can they can make whatever mandates they want. But we're still going to do what we're going to do here in the state. So I see that uh variation starting to pop its head back up, which is which
0: is a good thing. I would agree with that. Um, you also have mentioned that there were a lot of tenants that we talk about here with modern survival thinking that that helped you along the way. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Sure, um, definitely the thing that listening to the survival podcast put in the front of my mind, and I probably was ignoring a little bit too much, uh, was the need for the cash reserve. That you know, even if you want to pay down debt and you want to get rid of debt, the first thing you got to have is that cash reserve. And there were a couple of the points during the two and a half years, three years that it's taken to do this, where if I hadn't had that cash reserve. I probably would have been in, in big, big trouble. Um, definitely look at your, your ability to make it through, you know, a personal TOTWAKI or a job change or something like that for, for three to six months. Now that's only possible if you live in a cash flow positive manner, you know, day in and day out. If you're spending exactly what you bring in or you're spending more than you bring in, it's almost impossible to build that three to six month cash reserve. So looking at the entire cash flow picture, uh, kind of like a, you know, permaculture energy analysis of what's coming in, what's going out, what do I need to keep? Uh how can I be more efficient with certain things? You know, are there bills that I can reduce? Are there um unnecessary expenditures that I can either get rid of or replace one thing for the other so that I'm living cash flow positive day to day. Uh another aspect that definitely, definitely made a big difference for this was the, the two is one, one is none for the critical items. Uh, especially when I was living in two places at once, you know, I had my condo in Dallas and I was driving up here to Colorado, um, 16 hours each way. Once a month. a
0: hell of a drive, man.
1: Um, Oh yeah. And thank you very much for, for your show, because you definitely (laughs) kept me awake at three o'clock in the morning several times. So, uh, two is one, one is none. If nothing else so that I could have, one or two of the most critical items in each location and one that was shuttling back and forth with me. And that will definitely um, show you what's important when you have something, but it's a thousand miles away, so you can't use it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, because it's like, and you can see it in your head. You know exactly what it looks like what shelf it's sitting on, and it does you no good.
1: Exactly. Fortunately, I was moving out of the city towards the country, so if there was really something that was critical, uh, you know, some tool or some item or something like that, yeah, I was I was ten minutes from Home Depot, I could go get it, and then it proved to me okay, yeah, this is why you want to have five tape measures or uh, you know, <laughs> oh,
0: there's three different my dentist, or- dude. I I the other about t- about a month ago, I snapped and I went on Amazon, and I think I ordered like a dozen tape measures. Cause I know there's six in this house and that's the one thing I just misplace and I can never find and I always need it. And I was like, the hell with this. And I just stuck one in every drawer. So yeah, I'll find one somewhere now. Like, cause it's one of those things that doesn't cost that much. And the cash reserve thing, when you were talking about that, the way I try to explain that now is it's like, it's like having a battery bank. So when we start thinking about electrical redundancy in our homes, well, before you put solar panels on your roof, put a battery bank in. So there's something for the solar panels to, ch- to charge. You know, or before you get a generator, let's put a battery bank in. There's power to the house. Let's put a reserve up and then everything else we do gets more powerful. Without that reserve, we're in an on demand world and if whatever we're demanding isn't there, you can demand your ass off, you ain't getting it. And and that's how that cash reserve works. That it's sitting there like a battery bank that's been charged up. And and, and then that way we can draw on it in these intermittent outages, these these income outages. And without it, it's inevitable when you're doing something, especially like a relocation, shit's going to go wrong for some people more than others. But it's, for everybody, something's going to go wrong. And you have to have that there or a, a, a disaster becomes a major disaster or a mi- minor disaster becomes a significant disaster or an inconvenience becomes a problem.
1: Exactly. And the, the cash reserve might not necessarily be just all cash. You know, it may also be in the the copy canning food reserve, you know. Sure. I went cash flow negative for a while when I was paying two mortgages and paying some alimony and trying to pay the lawyers for the divorce, but you know what, being able to eat down some food stores offset some of not all of, but some of the cash flow negative situation. Um, so, you know, I had stored up or buffered some value that I could draw from when I needed it later.
0: I completely agree with that. that. Um, is there anything you really learned from the move itself, like the process of the move? Sure, sure.
1: Um, so let me say this. I did the entire 1,000-mile move one carload at a time, and I only rented a truck once, and that was just a, a Dodge Ram 1500. So I was moving a little bit at a time once a month, which will tell you, make you think very, very, very hard about what do I need, what do I not need. What is important to have in this location? What's important to have in that location? When you do that, you're going to find out that there are tons and tons of things that you just don't need. You thought you did. Uh, you know, I really like having this decoration on the wall, or you know, maybe someday I will use this. Um, but I can't even tell you the, the high percentage of stuff that just I, I did not move. I, it got sold on Craigslist or got replaced for something else. Um, so it makes you stop and just look at all your stuff and, you know, evaluate all that. Um, but I'll tell you the other thing that that process of moving confirmed to me that I was definitely going in the right direction because I was actually excited to get in the car for 16 hours to come up here.
0: And that's a hard thing to get excited to do unless you really love it. I think the other thing like, I learned from some moves was there are some items that you'll own that are rather expensive, but also rather bulky. And the expense to move them outweighs the expense of selling them and replacing them. And moving forces you to get business-like in your thinking really, really fast because it hurts when you don't. And that's something we just don't do in our lives. We don't run our lives like you would run a business. And it, it, it's the case that when you start doing that, a lot of things seem harsh at first, but long-term, they're best for everybody involved. And, and there's, you know... We had one instance where we looked at the cost of moving a bed, and I did not have time to do this. This was a job change where they were giving us some assistance on the relocation and all. And with crating up the bed and all, it was like, just move the headboard and stuff. We'll buy a new box spring and mattress when we get there. And we sold it, and we ended up spending less money to get a new bed because the transport and the packaging and all that was so expensive to get it done by the moving company. And that may not pertain to everybody, but it's an example of what I'm talking about, where some things just aren't worth the effort to move,
1: and yet some things are. You know, I had the exact opposite experience with the bed. I bought a very, very nice uh, Tempur-Pedic mattress after I had a back surgery, uh, and I credit that that mattress, but also changing to zero-drop shoes, with giving me the last, let's say, 10 to 15 percent of my recovery was being in the right mattress, being in the right shoes. So that Dodge Ram truck that I rented was specifically to move that. that mattress. So, you, you know, sometimes it's the other way around. Yeah, it's bulky, but it's worth it to me to have one of these and not be trying to get, you know, the same thing or, or something similar because I know this will work.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And where you're moving has a lot to do with that too. So, you know, I was moving, at the time I was moving near Allentown, Pennsylvania. Well, everything's there. When you're moving, when we moved to 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 like rural Arkansas, it was a little different thinking about you know what what would you source locally versus what would you take with you. Um, all of it comes down to, to the magic answer to every permaculture question, right? It depends. Bingo. So, you you mentioned going cash flow negative at times, so you probably had to leverage some debt to make everything work out. Can you talk about how you use debt, good or bad, to your advantage?
1: Certainly, and you know, anybody that hasn't listened to your show about good debts, bad debts, evil debts, I think that's a, a and it's definitely interesting primer on the subject, uh, and I definitely want to say that there is no such thing as good debt if you're already living cash flow negative. If you're you're evaluating can I take on this debt or not and you're already going the wrong way, boom, you can't take on anymore, period. Um, so obviously, borrowing from your cash reserve is kind of like borrowing from yourself. Um, as long as you put it back, as long as you, you know get your cash reserve back to where it should be eventually, uh, I would consider that good debt to yourself. Uh, something you didn't cover in that show, and hopefully we can get into it a little bit here, um, is the concept of a, a 401k loan where it's already your money. Yes, it's in a vehicle that's supposed to be for retirement, but if something comes up ahead of time where you need it, before retirement, I personally think a 401k loan is a good idea because you're paying yourself back the interest, or at least with my plan anyway. That's how it worked out that I was paying myself the interest, not paying somebody else the interest. Um, and so that 401k loan helped to bridge some places where you know, again, I was cash flow negative before my condo sold, et cetera. Um, so that was what I would consider a good debt. What do you think?
0: No, it makes perfect sense. If the, it, that's another one of those big it depends. Every plan is different. Every situation is different. Uh, I've seen people basically wipe out their 401k to take a loan that you know they're never going to be able to pay back. And, and to me, True. that's a totally different scenario than what you're talking about.
1: True. And, you know, again, every plan is different, like I said. Um, but if you have to default on it, the worst thing that happens, at least in my plan anyway, is that they'll take the other half of the 401k, liquidate that, pay off the original portion of the loan, and now, yeah, you've paid a a penalty on what they've liquidated, but it's a heck of a lot better than going into foreclosure.
0: Absolutely. No, There's, there's, everything has to be temperanced against the reality around it, and and most people don't do that. They just want to know, is this good or bad? Well, you know as soon as you get into permaculture thinking, it depends. And I know people get tired of hearing that, But it's the only honest answer you can give to anything that's complex because there are always situations around it. A totally different example of this is my my old business partner, Neil Franklin, was part of a panel one time where they were asking different professionals, what should you do in this instance? and It was basically like the company had enough money to either make payroll or make the payment to the taxes to the state for the quarter. And they couldn't do both. And what should they do? And every single per like the accountant, the lawyer, all said, well, you got to pay the state because they can come after you. Well, when they asked Neil, he said, you know, you, you, you pay the employees because you can negotiate with the state, but if you don't pay your people, they leave and don't come back. Your business is gone. You're done. You're under. The only way you can buy time here is to make your payroll and come up with some kind of arrangement to make, you know, good with the state. And you can defer that shit for 16 to 19 months uh, of paperwork until you can get caught up and get back into it, if your business fails after trying to do all that, at least you bought yourself the time to attempt recovery if you If you do what these people are telling you right now, just close your doors tomorrow because nobody 's coming to work exactly, and everybody exactly. sat there with their mouth agape and well, why Because this is an entrepreneur that runs a business that actually has to contend with that type of, of, of a decision, so every single major complex question requires a totality of understanding that. We don't really excel at as a nation anymore. Uh, People always want the Band-Aid for whatever problem comes up or the aspirin for whatever headache happens, and it doesn't really work that way in the real world.
1: So here's one for you along those lines. How would you go about figuring out whether it's a good idea to use some money from the family, whether that be inheritance or money borrowed from somebody in the family, uh um, to do something like this, like a strategic relocation, how would you analyze it?
0: Uh, it would again, it depends. I mean, do I need the money now can i can I get the money from a better source now? uh how much is it going to cost me to get the money now? So if I take an advanced inheritance and it's going to cost me Let's say it was $100,000. I'm just going make round numbers here. And instead of $100,000, I'm going to get $90,000. And if I don't do the advanced inheritance, it's going to take me 20 years before I see the money. I'm going to take the money now. And I'll, I, and, I'll, and I'll explain to you why. If I just took the $90,000 and stuck it in some ho-hum investments, it'd be worth more money in 20, in 20 years than it is now. So it all, I mean, there's a a million ways I would make that determination. I'm going to lose a great opportunity because I don't have the finances and I can avoid debt. I'm going to look real hard at taking the money now. Again, it all depends.
1: Sure. And for me, one of the big things to factor in is what's it going to cost you in terms of obligations to the family? Is this something that they're trying to do to really help you out and be generous, or is this something they're trying to do to you know, get you under their thumb, just like a, you know, a bank would have the death grip on you. Is the family now going to have a death grip on you in terms of obligations or, you know, here's how you're going to run the place because I helped you get it started. So therefore I have a, uh, an influence in it. So there's, uh, you know, some sort of family money I think could be, could be good or could be evil debt, depending again, it depends. Okay. Um,
0: and so, what, what, uh, how did you, how did that play into what you had to do? I, I, I kind of missed something there.
1: Sure. Um, so my father passed away back about 2011 and his family had owned, uh, quite a bit of land out in Iowa, farmland. And so his brother bought out the, the family farm. And so that money is technically going to my mother as the executor of the executor of the state. but fortunately through my father's good financial planning, through her good financial planning, you know they both kind of independently worked on the retirement, and now she's got basically two of them. Um, she's doing quite well. She has more than she needs. and so she could either continue to do very very well and have more than she needs, or she could help me out. Well, what happened was as she was trying to sell their house in Iowa in order for her to move here, there were some gaps uh, in, in cash flow and money. So the 401k loan showed up to help out with that. Uh, the tra- proceeds from the farm sale in Iowa showed up to be able to make it so that uh, I could leave Dallas, she could leave Iowa, and we could both end up in properties here in Colorado. Um, but by doing what we did, it doesn't look like I'm inheriting money. It looks like she's now owning part of this property as well. Does
0: that make sense? Yeah. So So we're avoiding some inheritance tax there. Yeah. And it's a win, win, win uh, all across the board as well. Um, Everybody wins in that scenario. So that's, that's very cool. That's, that's how you try to structure most deals. If you actually care about the person in the deal with you, um, and that's what you always do. If it's mom or your brother at all, but I think that if we can learn from that mentality, we can have better deals with anybody that we work with that we really want everybody to win equally in a deal or it's probably not worth doing.
1: Exactly. It's, it's about the philosophy of how can we all have what we want? Not, you know, how can I, do this so that you're then obligated for something. I think that's that's the huge determining factor of the it depends.
0: So I'm going to spitball here and say you're probably not full-time employed at this point. Um, it would probably be a hell of a commute for you if you was an airline pilot from where you're at. Are you, are you working at all anymore? And if you've left full-time empl- employment, has that like changed your your just your general view of the world?
1: Absolutely. So right up to the end of 2014, I was working full-time for a company called Bombardier that manufactures uh, business jets and some airliners. I was teaching in their simulator center, and it was uh, technically a full-time job, but a very intense schedule. You know, we were working nights, we were working weekends, shifting schedule, all that kind of stuff. Fortunately, what it did allow me to do was to compress basically a month's worth of work into about three weeks. So that's how I was able to, to come up here for a week at a time and, and do that commute slash move. Uh, like I said, I, I resigned from that uh, right about the beginning of the year. And since then, I've been an independent contractor, freelance pilot, uh, moving business jets um, for contractors in different parts of the world. And so it, it was definitely a shift from your typical career full-time job where it's my job I have a right to it uh I'm entitled to it uh anything that might take away this job or uh, you know somebody that might come in and do it do it differently or do it better or whatever you know any anything that might affect my job is evil and bad and, and I must resist it and it must go away um, and that kind of full-time job mentality where you know you're paid for your time You're not really necessarily paid for your talent. Um, There's no real way to throttle the job up and down and to say, I want to make more this month or, you know what, I need to really make less even though uh, in order to have more time. It's really, really hard to do that in the standard full-time employment model, right? You're going to be doing 40 hours a week or 160 hours a month or whatever it is, forever, right? Now I'm an independent contractor, so I understand there will be competition. There will be other people doing my job, and you know what, if there was nobody else doing this, I'd be a little scared because I'd be wondering, am I trying to fill a niche that doesn't need to be filled? Right. So I know yeah. there are lots of freelance pilots around the world, and that gives me a little bit of comfort, but also uh, a little bit of hesitation because um, I know they can bring value to the customers just like I can bring value to the customers. So I'm always trying to read the competition, read who else is out there and, you know, decide what's my value. What is the price tag I want to put on my time and my talent? I could raise my prices. I could try to work more if I needed, you know, some extra cash flow for some reason, or I could raise my prices even more and work less.
0: Yeah. I I think that a, a lot of things get changed as we get a dose of reality, I think is maybe the best way to put it. Um, I think most people don't realize that we're all independent contractors, we're all competing at all times, and we have this false sense of security, and then the other side of that is then there is some level of security, and a lot of that I think, and this has to do with what I was talking about in yesterday's show, holds us back, that there are technologies that can do a better job and free people from doldrums and, and what have you, and If your job is affected by that, your natural response is, we shouldn't do that. And and what's funny is that the people will bitch about their job every day and how horrible it is. But the minute something threatens it, well, it is what pays my bills. And I think that that holds us back from a lot of human progress. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a guild in the worst sense of the word guild. I mean, the original unions were guilds, plumbers guilds and trade guilds and what have you. And I think there's a lot of place that we could, we could move forward as a society as a whole if we weren't worried about protecting a job that really doesn't need a human being doing it anymore, if that makes sense.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, before I left, Bombardier I had done a couple of special projects trying to do some continuous improvement initiatives and you can you could definitely see not only resistance from the people who might be efficiented out of their current job even though the company had in writing a, a social compact or social contract that said, you know, if we make your job redundant due to inefficiency, we will find you some other job within the company. Um, so there was a, an awareness of that and an understanding of that, but there was still Resistance on the part of some people to, we just, we we don't want to get more efficient because that might affect my job. But it was also definitely apparent in the role of the managers as part of this continuous improvement project that they were going to have more accountability to get more efficient and that it might shine some light on their decision making as to whether their department really needed to be as big as it needed to be. And so, even if it wouldn't have taken away the manager's job, it might have taken away some of the manager's budget to do what they were going to do.
0: Yeah, I I think there's a lot of different things that happen when you exit employment too. Like another one is you realize I don't. It, it's not necessarily the case that people have to work forty hours a week to justify their existence. That that that's not a necessary thing. That that people can render enough value in in much less hours to be able to provide for themselves. And I, I I feel personally the entire concept of the 40-hour week was originally, yes, intended to prevent things like 100-hour weeks. I, I get that. But today it's become like a de facto standard that no one dare even challenge, right? Like, like unless you do that, you're not worthy is the way that we, we've made people feel. And it's created what I feel is a lot of artificial work. Like, like, if, if 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 I think that you could probably find at least ten million people in this country that if you just took them away, other than their family and friends and stuff like, but but just their their function that they do as a job, just didn't happen. No one would really give a shit. Nothing would. Nothing bad would happen. You know, if they're not the guy that keeps the nuclear plant from melting down or whatever, it wouldn't matter. They sit at a desk every day. They input some numbers or whatever. But there's so many redundancies that that person's job is not even necessary. And that starts to make you ask, what could we be doing if we redirected human beings towards solving actual problems?
1: True. And, you know, fortunately, the automation, I think, that's coming into play, not only computer technology, and you've talked about, you know, the automation in restaurants and some of that stuff. Yeah, it's going to make some people redundant, but fortunately, that's going to free up some more bodies to go – I uh, hate this term, but go back to the land and, and start working on permaculture projects that, that really need some of those manpower, the you know, the hands and hearts to, to get those things done. so it's one of the, the problem is the solution, taking people out of unfulfilling jobs, and hopefully we can create a space for them in, in a more fulfilling job somewhere else.
0: Or hopefully they'll create a, p- a place for themselves, I think, is really what we we need to start encouraging people, like, to figure out how to make something – Valuable for themselves with what they have.
1: Certainly, that's it too. Uh, another aspect you might not have thought of is the the class that is created between a, a full time worker and a part time worker, right? So here's another division in society that can be mediated by corporates and governments to say that okay, you're full time, you get the benefits. Oh, you're part time, no, you don't. Um, you know that's an artificial distinction that, that shouldn't exist, right? I'm a contractor now. I work. Period. It's not full time. It's not part time. It's simply I work.
0: Yeah, yeah, because it is a division thing. On you know, we divide men and women, black and white, rich and poor, upper class and lower class. It, it just on and on and on. And there's definitely another divide there with you know full time and part time work. And you can see it in people. If you have like a fully grown man, you know, that, that seems like he should be old enough to have a family and, and what all. And somebody says, "Well, do you have a job?" And they say, "Well, I have a job. And I do this." And but if they say that they're part time, there's almost an immediate oh. Do you know what I mean? Like Almost like a, right. a lack of a respect. Well, you know, I, I've seen people be that way, and the guy that has the part-time job is making twice as much as they are. Sure. Because his, sure. his hourly wage, wage is four times what the person that's kind of like, oh. like Like we've created this artificial belief that, you know, something magical happens at 40 hours, like you're transformed into or whatever they, you know, it's, is it 32 hours now that you get benefits or whatever? Like that's sufficient, you know, to, 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 to be valuable or something where, I mean, think about the people that work 48 hours on and 48 hours off as firemen and stuff like that. A lot of the time they're there, they're not doing anything, they're just available. So how many, how much work do, might they actually do during that 48 hour period? I know I'm going to piss off a bunch of firemen now or whatever. And I know you guys do some other stuff, but you know, my point is like, is that really work time? You know, and, and, and does it even really matter? Does it matter what people produce? I think the biggest thing that you, you come to understand as you start to like run a business for yourself, whether it's as a contract or, or an actual business is it doesn't matter how many hours you spend doing it. It matters was the time spent profitably.
1: Sure. Does it bring value to your customers? Uh, but you still need to, to have some sort of measurement to that. Is it, you know, project-based outcome? Uh, you know, in my case, I'm typically getting paid by the day. Sure. Uh, because if I can't I can't sell my time twice, right? I can't be flying airplane X and also flying airplane Y at the same time. So <laughs> a, a time-based evaluation makes sense because I can't sell my time twice. Sure. But a lot of other jobs, that definitely doesn't work. You know, it, it should be by project. I would rather have you know, two people that are 50% more productive than three people that are, you know, standard productive, let's say.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, even in your chain, somebody somewhere is being evaluated on project, right? So, So there's someone somewhere in your chain that's job is get this plane from here to here, and this is how much money you get to do that. And then they're finding someone like you and paying you a portion of that for your time to do that. And that's like this hierarchical structure. No, it's invisible to most people. They don't see that, that reality, and i think that when you start so we can kind of conclude with this cuz i know you're big into permaculture like i am the permaculture thinking like expo- just it ex- ex- exposes that to you like all of a sudden you see that pattern recognition not just in, a, in the, the the leaves of a tree or a tessellation pattern you see the patterns in social structures and business structures et cetera.
1: absolutely um you know seeing that with the the co-op too right it's a lot like the strategies for an alternative global nation where he's trying to talk about a, a bio regional organization this this co-op has kind of got some of the same things going on where we have um, you know full-blown board members but each one's kind of carving off the piece of it that they're really interested in right in my case I'm working on the website and the record keeping structures and some of that stuff to help make that more efficient um, so The permaculture thinking, the edge thinking, the uh, you know, what are the energies and and the available niches here? Yeah, it shows up everywhere: social structures, corporate structures, you know, personal lifestyle design, the methods and the way of looking at it definitely shows up everywhere. I agree.
0: And what what has that done for you from an income streams uh, uh, perspective as well? Like in, in analyzing and thinking about income streams from a permaculture perspective? Sure, sure.
1: Um, first of all, I really like Paul Wheaton's ideas about a passive income stream. Uh you know, even the IRS recognizes there's a difference between an active income stream and a passive income stream, something that will continue to work for you even if you're not physically doing it every hour of every day. Uh so in my case I've done some a uh, little bit of commodities trading. I've had uh, a web development business where the servers just ran for me and did their thing, right? I got paid every month to host the websites, even when I wasn't doing anything. Um, but also, I think diversity of income streams is really important, and this kind of goes back to the whole full-time employment thing too, where, you know, most people have their career, I do this. You know, I'm going to do this for 40 years, I'm going to retire, and I'm kind of limited to doing this. Uh, you know, whether it's making widgets or, or writing manuals that you do, right? Whereas, if you think about permaculture, right, we have multiple functions done by each element and multiple elements doing the same function. So I'm going to set up myself, my lifestyle so that I have a couple of primary income streams, obviously flying. Um, Second thing that I'll try to build in is more permaculture design work, slowly throttling that up. And those two big ones will definitely cover all my bills and then some, but I'm still very free to be able to explore my other capabilities and to add on more if I want to, right? I've got good at doing thing A, but while I'm working on thing A, I found that I'm really capable of thing B. Now I can do thing B or A plus B or A times B. You know, I, I get this new niche that's a combination of A and B uh, so that I can be the only one who does this or the best person at doing thing A prime B. Um, so I see that in my own thinking now where I'm going, hey, I can also do this, and I can also do this, and I could start up ducks, and I can start up microgreens, and, oh, hey, ducks and microgreens go together really well, and if those are working pretty good and I can bring on a partner who can take care of some of the day-to-day stuff so that it almost is like a passive income stream where I can inject a little bit of design knowledge and help and you know, maybe adjust some cash flow stuff, um, all of a sudden I've got all these possibilities and I'm deciding from, what are the things I want to do, not just, oh, I've always done this.
0: Sure, sure. I mean, I think I I look at it this way. like So with permaculture, if somebody said, I want you to come look at a piece of property and, and I want to set up a business there, and I, I went out and I said, okay, well, where is it? Let's say they say central Georgia, peach ground zero, right? And I think, well, you know, peaches might be something we could, we could design into this system. I said, so, well, I want to grow oranges. Well, dummy, they don't grow there. Right. And I don't care if Seb Haltzer grew a lemon in in the Alps. Uh, he's not making money on lemons. It, it's a it's a it's a stunt to prove what can be done. The stuff that he's growing to sell is the stuff that grows there. You need to grow the things that grow here. So you have that fundamental understanding with permaculture. Some of these things that can be done that are extremes are interesting. We can learn from them, but when it comes to making a system productive, what does that system naturally want to produce and how do I tweak it? So if you have that thinking and then you get into a position where I, I don't have my employment, my, my income went down, whatever, instead of saying I need a job, which is what the the first thing most Americans do when they're, they're pinched with money is cut spending where they can and say I need to find a new job or a better job or a job that pays more money. Instead, you take this fundamental analysis where you say what things around me are capable of producing income if I assemble them properly? And, and w- when you realize how simple that is, you realize, well, I don't want a job. Jobs suck. I'll take contracts or I'll take you know, certain agreed-upon uh, exchanges of value, but I don't want a job where somebody tells me to show up every Monday morning at 7 o'clock. I'm going to go to five meetings a week that could have been an email. I mean, all of the things about actually having a job become horrific as soon as you understand the simplicity of assembling things that produce value. And that's like an entrepreneur mindset. I think it's like when I discovered permaculture, why it was immediately obvious that this was the way to, to handle design and troubleshooting. It made perfect sense to me. And you wonder – facetiously, you wonder why we're not teaching our kids that in school, right? Because what would happen if if the majority of people figured that out? Well, they would become very difficult to control and, and they would stop needing other people to, to solve their problems for them. But on the other hand, you wonder why there's not enough enlightened people that it's not being taught more. You know, the like, because I, I I don't know about you. Every entrepreneur I've ever met has never tried to hold these things like as secret sauce, close to the vest, like only insiders get to know this. Like entrepreneurs freely share this, and then it's like it falls on deaf ears a lot of times. People just can't see it. I guess they're not they're not a- actually to the level of pattern recognition yet to realize it is that simple.
1: Sure, and. Y- you know, we talked earlier about some of the people that are around in this area, you know, some of the conventional ranchers and some of the new wave that are coming in here. And a lot of the new wave that are coming in here, they, they kind of get what we're talking about right now that, you know, hey, the, the traditional have a job, nine to five thing just isn't really going to work. I'm going to go do something different. Um, they're finding a, a fertile place to do that out here, but they may not necessarily have gone deep enough into permaculture as a design method. A lot of them are really good at doing permaculture as a particular technique. And so, you know, I find it really, really interesting talking to some of these people about what it is that they're interested in and being able to inject some of the actual design methodology into the things that are, they're already interested in, the co-op or something else or whatever, and to see how the method will actually make it practical instead of just some ideas floating around out there. Uh, you know, I would really like to have pigs or have chickens or have whatever. Uh, in fact, we even had a, a young couple that were out here had a degree in animal husbandry, took on too much, pissed off everybody that they had a um, lease with. You know, they were leaving tools out. They were uh, just being really disrespectful to other people's stuff. But it's because they had too much going on and they couldn't actually think about how to be a good neighbor anymore uh, if they'd really just done a permaculture analysis of their own time and their own scale and their own ability to do things, uh, I think they would have been a lot better entrepreneur.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's like another thing that people uh, need to develop as a skill set to, to be able to do these things, and it does make sense to start small. That's why you know, you mentioned microgreens, especially for people that are in foodie areas or high restaurant areas. I, I think even if that person only runs a business like that for six months, never makes enough money to make it a full-time business, but learns the operational components to a business from it, it it will make them a little money and give them a better education they'll get in four years of business school when it comes to being an entrepreneur. You will never get that education in a college classroom, ever, ever, period, that you'll get from actively running a business, managing expenses, understanding customer relations, and it will likely... I I think, so we need, we have like starter jobs, right? Which we all know are like doomed. Like the starter jobs working in fast food places and all from technology, they're doomed. So what we need is people maybe looking more along the lines of what you would call like a starter business, like a business that teaches you fundamentals that is easily entered and easily exited, uh, possibly sold off to somebody that wants to make it full time, but maybe it's just, hey, I'm not doing that anymore. Now I'm doing this. And like those types of businesses that are quick to start, low-cost start, but teach you operational level. I mean, that could be landscaping, for God's sakes. It's it's kind of the same thing, a trailer, some equipment, and you're in business. And a person that that has that track record doesn't generally make the mistakes that you were just talking about because they don't overestimate their capabilities because they've actually tested themselves. So you have a degree in animal husbandry. You think – question for you. Do you think a cow gives a shit that you have a degree in animal husbandry? Nope. Doesn't care, right? Doesn't want to nope. eat too much, bloat it itself, and kill itself. If you, if you can keep it alive, cow could care less what your degree's in, but cows have, like, we've learned with Permaethos, cows have multiple ways of killing themselves. And sometimes they seem like they just want to kill themselves today. And you have to learn that as you go along. Um, You know, sheep really want to kill themselves sometimes, it seems like. And, sure, sure. And they don't care if you have a degree. And what happened is we have – I think we have too much pride in degrees and not enough relative intelligence left to understand the value of experience.
1: Well, I think also we've downplayed or degraded the the concept of being a journeyman at something underneath a master. Yeah. Uh, there's still a lot of this kind of leftover in the pilot world, let's say, where it's acceptable to go through an internship. It's acceptable to go through – uh, you know, lesser jobs as you're building up your flight hours, building up your experience. But the best cases for that are where you're doing those experience building hours underneath a really experienced captain. So you're, a, for all intents and purposes, a journeyman pilot right there sitting next to a master pilot. And so you get to see how they do what they do. You get to see the judgment and experience that they take on. And you learn your limits and the limits of the aircraft. I think we should see more of that come back to agriculture, where, or permaculture even, where, you know, yeah, you might not have grown up on the farm, but here's this person that that has been on the farm for a while or has been in this particular business for a while and is willing to let you do some sort of satellite, you know, something similar or a particular piece of the business so that you can learn hey, is this really for you? Are you really capable of it? And if you run into problems, here's somebody you can bounce off the problems to who's been around, who's seen it, who's uh, probably got a solution for it, so that you're not learning by mistakes as much as learning by improvements.
0: I think it's also like, how bad do you want it? Like, There's so many young people out there now that I hear bitch about not having opportunities, and I'm like, we have an opportunity for you to do whatever you want to in West Virginia. If you can put together a coherent business plan – We'll feed you, give you a little bit of startup money, give you a place to sleep, and give you a shot to take a shot at it. And, and, and you get like almost nobody willing to take a shot at it. They want, well, what am I going to do? I don't know what you're going to do. You're going to have to figure out what you're going to do, you know? Um, but I, you know, I looked at like the, the, the the greenhouse that we have like the frame set up for up there, and I go, we could have a plant nursery in rolling in, in a couple weeks. And and I told my you know our partner my partner Kevin in Perma Ethos, I said, When I was when I was twenty one years old out of the army, if I knew that this existed, you would have had to blow me out of here with dynamite to get rid of me. Right. And, you know, for another example that I've seen happening with, with a person that's closer to my age, Mike Vertries that's doing the soils uh school with with Elaine Ingram and all. Um, he said that people asked him, well, how did, how did you get this opportunity? And he said, Jack made the mistake of letting me one inch in the door and I would not go away. And I'm like, where are these 20 somethings that claim to want this stuff that bad? Because. You know from your own life experience, it doesn't get easier. People think as you get older and you get successful, this stuff gets easier. It's much harder because you become much more set in your ways. You become much more entrenched. You have a lot more to give up. The 20-somethings should be owning this space right now. They should be taking it over. And you've got old farts like me saying, here's some opportunity. And no one's there. I I don't think people want it as bad as they claim they do. Because if you do, it's there.
1: And I don't know if you've been keeping up with the stuff going on up at Paul Wheaton's laboratory, but, you know, he tried that for, you know, a year and a half of yep. a really open door policy of, you know, if you've got the tiniest smidgen of a vision that remotely maybe possibly might align with what I'm doing up here, come on up and give it a shot. And he got a lot of people that were really trying to freeload. There's yep. really no better way to say it. They were, they're trying to pull that off. And now that he shifted directions going... You know, I'm gonna give you a piece of ground, and you're gonna go do it the way you want to do it. And oh yeah, I might be here to to help you out or to uh, yeah. you know bounce some ideas off of maybe. But that's my entire level of involvement. That's it. I'm, I will be an advisor, rarely. And now he's got what four people up there now, five something like that. Um, I think that really shows you that it's it's not easy. Not only to find the people, it's not easy to do. But you know what? If it was easy, everybody would be doing it. Oh, wait, that's what we were talking about.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is the case. I, I, I don't think. I, I actually do think it can be easy. I mean, maybe simple is a better word. All this stuff is simple, but it's not easy. It all requires effort, sacrifice, and I think the biggest thing that requires that Americans are just terrified of anymore is failure. We've been told that we're number one and the best for so long. We fear failure. Well, the way this country actually became the best, and I believe that it was, and I believe it can be again, was through failure, through failure upon failure upon failure and saying that's part of the process. You keep doing it. You keep getting up. You keep going back at it. And you know, you're talk this trails into your discussion about journeyman type thinking, you know. People don't want entry level positions anymore. They want a good job right from the beginning. Well, I'm sorry, you have no experience, you don't get a good job, you get a shit job, and then you prove yourself to me with a shit job, and maybe I'll I'll give you an opportunity for a job that's a little less of a shit job. And then if I don't give you another opportunity, then you take your experience at your shit job and not-so-shit job, and you go find a better job or you go find a better opportunity or a better uh, line of employment, and you, you start to realize coming back to our original discussion here on strategic relocation why so few people do it because it takes sacrifice. I mean you're happier probably now than you were five years ago I would imagine.
1: Very much so. Absolutely.
0: But it wasn't – it wasn't simple to get it done, and it did – I'm sure there were places along the way where you were like, do I really want to do this?
1: Absolutely. It took a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of gut checks, a lot of places where, you know, do I hang a left and, and go somewhere else? Do I reverse course and go back to my full-time job that's that's safe? Um, you know, there's a lot of places where I had the opportunity to – let's say bail out. And even now, you know, I'm still making sure that I have an exit strategy just in case, but you know what? All the things that I gave up previously, I think have been brought back to me, if not 10 times over in my new direction, my new life that I've designed for myself.
0: Yeah. I think that that's another big thing that people always have to do is make sure that they have exit strategies. Uh, We're big on pointing out the government doesn't have exit strategies from things like a war, but we're not even smart enough to create exit strategies from things like a mortgage. And that's really, really foolish if you understand the root of the word mortgage is mortality engages, uh, as, de- as a grip. So a mortgage is a death grip. So I think when you're entering one of those, maybe you should have a plan to get out of it.
1: True, true.
0: Well, anyway, man, I appreciate you being with us today. Uh, any final thoughts on, on how people can, uh, can get started toward, uh, figuring out if they really even need to relocate? Cause I'm sure there might even be some times when people, uh, people decide like in the end, maybe it's not so bad where I am.
1: Uh, absolutely. It's, it's not for everybody. This isn't, uh, you know, holding it up as, oh my gosh, you must relocate or you're not a real modern survivalist or anything like that. That wasn't, wasn't the point at all. Um, so I would say the, the general model, you know, underneath all, all all kinds of things where it will, it will depend, but the general model is number one, figure out what you really do in fact want. Um, Number two, uh, figure out where you like to go vacation because it's probably somewhere close to there that you're want, gonna wanna be. Uh, make sure you, you take into consideration the, the scale of permanence, you know, things you can control versus can't control. Uh, don't forget about the people, the people, the people, the people, the people around you. Um, going to be a big important factor to, to being happy or not. And then ultimately, it comes down to you. You're, you're the one moving, you're the one bringing yourself and your own habits. So if you can improve upon yourself, or make sure you make really smart choices about who you keep around you You're going to have uh, a better chance of success doing the strategic relocation thing So that's my general model for it But your mileage may vary
0: Yeah, I, no, I completely agree, David I think it's, uh, it, it's part of life we, we, We've got to, uh, to critically analyze a decision that's this big And, and in the end, uh, I think the only person that can ever answer that question for you As to where you should be and how you should get there is you Very true Alright, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spear for today. along with David hate helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Revolution is you. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we